0: The going viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice.
1: HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Hello, and welcome to Health ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 15th of September. In this COVID update, Associate Professor Nigel Crawford will present the most recent COVID developments, including the Omicron booster, the latest ETAGI decisions, such as the Moderna baby dose, and Novavax for teens. He will explain the new variant vaccines and whether or not we should mix and match boosters and spend some time forecasting the next wave. He will also take a look at the Australian monkeypox response, particularly the national vaccine strategy, which will involve subdermal injections.
0: Thanks to Health Ed for the opportunity to present again today. My name's Nigel Crawford, and um, you can see from the right of the slide, we've got the coronavirus, but I'm not just going to, a, going to give a COVID-19 vaccine update today. I'm going to touch base on a few other vaccine preventable diseases today as well, which I think reflects where we are in the pandemic. So just starting off with my declarations of interest, I am the head of the RCH immunisation service and also the director of SAFIC, The Victorian Vaccine Safety Service based at MCRI and the current chair of ATAGI and this presentation reflects my own views and not solely those of my affiliations, I have no industry declarations. So the topics I'm going to cover today include as mentioned the COVID-19 vaccines and the newest part of the program looking at the under fives, also the Novavax vaccines now available for the 12 to 17 year olds, discuss the bivalent vaccines, as well as look at um, some new and emerging vaccines as they come through, as well as some emerging vaccine, um, other vaccine for diseases such as flu, and then look at re-emerging infections such as measles and polio. So in terms of the paediatric vaccine for under fives, there's two vaccines that are looking to move into this space, and they're both of the mRNA vaccines. So the Moderna or VAC vaccines is six months to five years of age. It's a two-dose schedule a month apart. And the important thing to remember is that children have not had severe um, a COVID overall, um, they've had a way to manage to handle this infection that's quite different to adults, but we are still seeing severe disease cases. It does go down into those younger age groups. We have seen quite a lot of COVID croup and other things at different parts of the pandemic. So certainly we want to protect those at highest risk with COVID, but they don't need as much of the antigen in the vaccine. So the Moderna vaccine is a quarter of the adult dose or 25 micrograms. Still recommended to have a third dose if they're immunocompromised as part of that primary schedule. And the link there to the target guidance that talks through Uh, the rationale and use of that um, vaccine in the in the population. The other mRNA vaccine Pfizer or Cormonati also has a vaccine uh, now available that's six months to four years of age we already have um, the 5 to 11 vaccine and again they're using a much lower dose. They just showed from the early phase trials that they don't need as much antigen it's only three micrograms or one-tenth of the adult dose, which is 30 micrograms for their vaccine. So definitely a reduction in dose is required and that vaccine's currently under consideration by the, the TGA. And as everyone's aware, we need to have TGA provisional approval before it can be considered uh, by target in terms of um, whether that vaccine is recommended to come onto the immunisation schedule. So in terms of the evidence, again, not the big 40,000 that we saw in the adult trials. Again, it's obviously harder to accrue in those paediatric populations. And they're using what's called bridging studies. So they're doing, um, looking at the immune response and how it compares between the children and those sort of 16 to 24 year olds in terms of uh, the immune response, as also the impact against infection. Again, as I mentioned before, Seen less severe disease in these cases. And from the Moderna perspective, there's over 5,500 children between six months to five years of age. And it showed a modest protection against infection, which is around 35 to 52%, depending on the age group that you're looking at. That can never help be bridged to the adult studies, which showed around 40% protection against infection, which relates to Severe disease of around 85% plus, remembering that severe disease relates to hospitalization and intensive care. So expecting these vaccines to have that level of protection uh, in this age group, which is equivalent to what we've seen in in the adult um, population. A link there below to the Moderna presentation at the FDA, which has more detail on their evidence. So In terms of the recommendations, it's really back to the main um, premise of the program remains protection from severe disease. We know the vaccines have really been holding up well in terms of that protection both from the original strain and we'll talk to some of the newer formulations that are now becoming uh, available but it's really trying to prevent severe disease so therefore it's back to the list of those that have a risk of more severe disease, some of which have seen historically um, initially in the studies from the UK, but also our Canadian colleagues have recently looked at all their hospitalizations from COVID and showed that it's really this list of conditions are the ones you need to optimise protection for. So it includes those um, on immune suppression or have immunodeficiency, including those who have cancer, who still require that third dose as part of the primary schedule, as mentioned. Those who have had a transplant or specific um, T-cell therapies, complex congenital heart disease, structural abnormalities of the airway or chronic lung disease, clearly very important for COVID, type one diabetes, and also very importantly, chronic neurological or neuromuscular conditions, which can include, but it's not exclusively those that have a disability, that cry frequent assistance, such as severe cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or trisomy 21, which across all ages has been shown to be more likely to have severe disease with COVID-19. So They're the groups that are being asked to come forward to have the vaccine and the vaccine rollout for the um, under fives has just commenced with a link there as mentioned to the ATAGI guidance. But how about time to wait? We know since January or since December last year, we've had a lot of Omicron, initially the B1 2 wave, then now more recently 4 5. Fortunately, we're on the downward slope of the number of cases, but we know there's been a lot of disease circulating, including in this younger under 5 population. And essentially, for consistency, we're still recommending that everyone waits that three months, whether that's for your primary course or your booster, if you've had a recent infection, you're recommended to wait three months for that dose. It'll be a combination for a lot of people in terms of infection and vaccines to optimise their protection from COVID-19. Constantly reviewing that evidence and obviously trying to see if any particular changes to the the variants or um, variants of concern emerge, that may change, We're currently consistently sticking with that three months is the key takeaway message. So how about co-administration? Again, it relates to some of the issue around the trials is that they don't administer the vaccines with COVID-19 in the first instance. They want to see how their vaccines work, what's the rate particularly around fever and possibly febrile convulsions, which is one of the... Um, things you need to monitor very closely because febrile convulsions, as the audience will know, is is very common in in children, particularly between um, six to around three to four years of age, can be up to five years of age, can have febrile convulsions. Around 3% of children will have one in their lifetime, so It's really important to know what's the rate of both fever and potential of this complication. If you co-administer with another vaccine, you may be more likely to have a fever. So um, that was something that was monitored very closely in the trials in terms of fever, but not co-administration. So therefore it's okay to give them um, together if needed in terms of the permissive recommendations you can see in the red text. This is straight out of the ATAGI guidance but the recommendation is to try and separate them if you can. Uh, We know that lots of vaccines are recommended between 6, particularly 6, 12, 18 are the standard time points Um, but if you are going in or it's the way to vaccine uh, at the same time they can be given to minimise those missed opportunities to vaccinate. One of the things to really now be aware of, I think, particularly in in primary care, I know lots of GPs on the the health ed audience in particular, is around um, errors and potentially pulling out the wrong vaccine or the wrong concentration. And in terms of administration, acknowledging this slide from Jim Buttery, but there's two formulations now of um, Moderna. We've had obviously different formulations for the Pfizer vaccine. In the red box, you can see that there is development potential of a of a pre-filled syringe, but at the moment we're still um, using multi-dose files, and you need to just make sure that we're taking out the right uh, amount and the right concentration. So there is obviously Commonwealth training, but we've really got to be very careful to make sure we're giving the right vaccine at the right time to the right person, depending on their age band. So in terms of logistics, who's gonna be giving out the vaccine? Again, it's gonna be a lot of primary care sites, and I know lots have signed up to administer this vaccine and getting access to this new Moderna product. The clinic finder will give access um, a list of those clinics. There are also new f- paediatric hospital hubs being set up. I know in Victoria uh, hubs are being set up and, and established and there will be information running through the state um, as well as the, the Commonwealth in terms of where those sites are. Important to know is it's not going to be pharmacists. We know that pharmacists have done a fantastic job at administering particularly lots of Moderna vaccine early but they're not currently um, authorised to vaccinate this younger um, population of under five. So it really will be the GP sites plus some um, paediatric uh, hubs that will be administering the vaccine in this age group. In terms of information, informed consent, really again important to have that information available and there's a link there to the government website which has all that information, both in terms of the clinical information as well as the consent forms. And this really, I think, just highlighting that concern around potential errors and preparations, just making sure you're checking uh, all of the issues in terms of um, how long can it wait for once it's um, first punctured, you've got six hours to administer the vaccine, make sure when you're drawing up that you've got the right formulation and the right time and that for the right patient. And um, all of those checks are are listed on this table, which is a good thing to put up in your clinic room in terms of the preparation of of this particular vaccine uh, for the under five age group. It can be administered to five year olds um, as highlighted there, this vaccine, but we already have the five to 11 year old Pfizer as well. So again, the five year old now have two options. So in terms of safety, we always look very closely to United States in terms of how the vaccines are behaving. As I mentioned, fever was a key thing we were looking for. There were um, quite a number of fevers reported in the, in the clinical trials, but very few febrile convulsions. And looking at the studies from the US, they've published um, already this at their ACIP public um, presentations in, in early September. You can see they're given a big volume of vaccinations. So they've already given 1.5 million and actually both vaccines are are licensed uh, in this age group in the US and they rolled out both vaccines. So Moderna and Pfizer, you can see there, significant numbers. And importantly, no reports of myocarditis. So uh, we certainly have seen myocarditis, particularly in the um, adolescents, between 16 and 17 males, the highest risk, but it has been seen across both genders, particularly up to 25 years of age but less seen as a background rate in terms of children. We saw very few cases in the five to 11 and currently no reports, acknowledging this is predominantly dose one, but essentially very few serious reports in the US. You can see on the um, panel just inside, it's only been 19 overall serious uh, events, over 1.5 million administered with their passive surveillance system. So very happy with the the safety profile from this um, emerging data out of the US, which is very reassuring. So in terms of the errors that have been seen, it's really on that left-hand side just flagging that actual fact, very few adverse events reported but a lot of errors. So you can see the top one is incorrect dose, number three was the administered the wrong age, Um, product preparation issues, wrong product administered. So really a lot of reports of errors being made. So I think that just reinforces the need to make sure we're really checking very closely given we now have a number of different products with different formulations. So I think that double checking and having a really clear system is going to be really important. And while there have been a number of fevers as mentioned reported, it's been very low numbers. So uh, overall very reassuring from that um, United States Fairs data. So moving now into the variants of concern, I guess this is a bit of horizon scanning, you know, where are we next in terms of the pandemic? And again, see everyone watching very closely the epidemiology and as you recall at late last year as the Delta wave was subsiding, we weren't expecting another wave to emerge in terms of Omicron which obviously emerged initially out of um, South Africa and then rapidly spent around the country and you can just see here on the right hand side it's just that anogenic map of where the um, strains are sort of emerging from. So Wuhan's in the middle there, the original strain, ancestral strain, Delta just below it. Omicron came a little bit unexpected, a little bit distant from that location. You can see BA1, BA2, uh, the next wave and then four further down that ladder or that tree. So the question is going to be, are we going to see further evolutions of the Omicron uh, variant into six, seven or further down, or will other strains potentially emerge? So again, I'm not trying to say we're necessarily going to have a, another wave, but it's um, certainly possible that there will be changes. And that's why it's so important to continue monitor the international situation, seeing how vaccines are working and what their breadth of protection is um, over time. There's lots of international efforts to look at the new formulations. Obviously, as I've mentioned earlier, the ancestral, these original vaccines, majority of us have have had really high, ninety-five percent coverage, and particularly sixteen and over around the country, at least two doses. Many have also had the boosters. Over seventy percent have been protecting us from severe disease, and they're really holding up well out to six um, months to eight months in terms of severe disease. What the companies have done is they've gone to look at can they have new formulations that include the new variants. So um, both Moderna and Pfizer, the mRNA vaccines are well established to do this quite quickly. And the original plus Omicron BA1 vaccine has um, already been reviewed um, by the TGA and has been provisionally approved. So there's considerations of these variant vaccines. And this is just a link to the ATAGI Weekly Summary which is available and, and brings up some information about what's being discussed still in our in the weekly uh, meetings at ATAGI. So definitely considering this vaccine and, and how it might fit into the mix of our current recommendations. But it's not just uh, Omicron BA1. There's also Original Plus Omicron BA45. And again, lots of people in the audience would have been watching what's happening in the United States and the FDA have provisionally approved and ACIP are keen to use these vaccines. Again, a little bit further down the Omicron tree, it is our most recent wave, but we really want to have breadth of protection from these vaccines, which they do appear to be showing just at the moment. So it's really important to still have that original component in there and hopefully these vaccines will continue to maximise protection and be, have us well prepared for whatever might be coming next. But again, all these formulations will be reviewed as they go through TGA uh, approval processes. Going to move now on to other vaccine preventable diseases. As mentioned, I think COVID-19 is sort of moving what we're calling to the new business as usual or BAU. We've got to try and bring COVID into our maintenance of infections overall. It's not going to be something we can just vaccinate. It's going to completely disappear. We know in terms of its transmissibility and how it's working, we need to be able to manage uh, this infection more broadly and think of it in the, in the context of other um, uh, infections, I think is, is helpful and important. So I think looking at what's going to happen in the Northern Hemisphere, again we're obviously watching across the different countries what's um, emerging and we know that the Northern Hemisphere have been watching Australia and our, um, other countries really closely because they're trying to see what might be coming for them. So again some of the drive, we know that the um, uh, bivalent vaccines have already been recommended in the in the UK and they're administering them already as part of their autumn kind of roll out before they move into their winter. The US obviously again very keen to have these new formulations but how about flu? Well in terms of flu for us you can see in the red line there that's the flu numbers of notifications so it came hard and it came early this year so the infection started to emerge in April and by May we'd had a really high peak, much earlier than our usual later kind of July, August time. And You can see there the 27 and 2019 we still had significant um, flu years, obviously very low in the in the pandemic and essentially nothing you know in 2021, but um, as we're in in the lockdowns in in particular and there wasn't really flu circulating because of all the border restriction closes seen internationally. So Really one of the first countries to see a big high flu season uh, as we came out of the the pandemic restrictions. So how about our coverage? In 2020, we did really well at getting high coverage of flu. As everyone was worried in early sort of March, as normally is the time of our rollout of vaccines, we just closed the borders internationally in 2020. And we said, we don't want flu and COVID coming at the same time. So we went really hard and fast and got a really high flu coverage in 2020. How about in 2022? We were saying flu may come and it may emerge, but we really didn't get the uptake uh, that we were hoping for. And at, while it was 38% in, in 30th of um, July, 2022, as per that, that number, we haven't really got up to the peaks that we would have, um, have liked to have, have seen, which I'll show in some more slides. Not too bad in the 65 plus and over, who have already had the routine vaccine, but not as good in the, in the younger age groups. This website here is the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, has a dashboard of the flu coverage, which is um, really helpful. And this one here is just comparing the, the flu coverage um, in the under-5s. under, under five. So this is a group that's fully funded to have the vaccine. As mentioned, it was nearly 50 per cent in 2020. In 2021 it was um, just over 20 per cent when there was no borders open, but we only got up to 30 per cent coverage in 2022, despite such high coverage. So, I've touched on earlier um, this um, presentation in terms of COVID, and while it's a relatively um, less severe disease in children, we do have hospitalisations and severe cases. With flu, it's the opposite. We know that those in over 65, particularly under fives, are much more likely hospitalised, and definitely my hospital at, at RCH in Melbourne, we had multiple admissions, um, both to hospital and intensive care, and we really want to optimise protection of, of children with flu vaccine moving forward. So how about other emerging infections? I just want to touch base now on a couple, particularly polio and, and, um, and measles. And polio is something that's obviously close to being eradicated, but not quite. So there has been a global initiative through the WHO to try and eradicate polio through vaccination. Um, smallpox is the only uh, infection that's been truly eradicated through vaccination, but polio is a very close, obviously something like a pandemic with closure of borders and other issues made that very difficult. In terms of um, surveillance or emergence, we know that Israel, which had a very high rate of vaccine coverage in inactivated polio, the intramuscular vaccine, saw that with all the disruptions in Syria with the sad war and situation there, that obviously coverage with vaccines went down. They started seeing cases of um, polio in Syria and then in the wastewater of, um, of Israel. And they managed that by actually adding an oral polio vaccine to the schedule. Inactivated polio will provide protection, but it won't necessarily stop transmission because it's possible that polio will circulate through the gut. So the oral polio vaccine is the way to eradicate that potential circulation. They included OPV back into the Israeli childhood schedule and essentially stopped any transmission of cases within Israel. It's a major concern that um, internationally that the pandemic, because all the disruption to systems will impact on the expanded program of immunizations. And that particularly focuses on young um, children up to the age of one year. They really roll in with lots of vaccines over that time time frame. So any reduction of coverage of polio potentially will see an emergence um, internationally. And unfortunately, this has already happened. So people may have seen this come out in the media last week uh, in terms of a state of emergency for New York. So again, this is not just in countries that are covering EPI. these are in countries where there may be a little bit of reduction in terms of that routine schedule. We know New York was hit very early on in the pandemic with the severe wave and disruption to their um, overall system and coverage. And they have started to see polio in wastewater so they're trying to think about how they can manage that in New York and I think something all of us internationally including here in Australia need to be starting to think about. And how about measles? We know um, when we talk about the r naught or the transmissibility of, of um, SARS-CoV-2 it normally sits around one to two can be high obviously as you have more disease circulating measles is around 15 to 18 so for every one person infected they can infect another 15 people and this has always been part of our public health response if someone flies into Australia with measles on an airline the chance of someone else on that flight getting measles is extremely high because it's so transmissible and not that long ago in 2019 just pre the pandemic people will also remember that there was a severe outbreak in Samoa where due to a vaccine administration era which is something else we've touched on today where they basically um, had an administration not of a vaccine but something uh, a medication that led to a severe outcome in some children completely disrupted their program and confidence dramatic reduction in their measles vaccine uptake therefore set up for a severe measles outbreak and um, as mentioned here, there's over 76 children died in, in Samoa because of that infection, as well as the morbidity from those that have survived. So if you do see a dramatic reduction in measles coverage, it really can go through a population uh, extremely rapidly with a morbidity and mortality that's associated with measles, which can include you know, brain inflammation as well as pneumonia and other severe effects. So measles, certainly from a childhood perspective, are really severe infection, but can also infect uh, adults as well. So right early on in the pandemic, some colleagues on the left here, Kim Mulholland and David Durheim, um, uh, both wrote uh, around how we really need to be thinking about this um, in terms of trying to prevent measles and measles deaths in, in coming years or as we move um, through the different phases of the pandemic. So really a lot of awareness here that measles is something that particularly is, is sensitive to those reductions in coverage, as I mentioned earlier. And as I've um, been flagging, this has already been seen where there has been a measles um, surge in in Zimbabwe and Africa. There was some um, uh, loss of confidence in terms of some anti-vaccine sentiment, some of which has been driven by COVID-19 can flow over into other vaccines. So really maintaining confidence in our vaccine program, making sure we're communicating the rationale for the vaccines, closely monitoring their safety and communicating is extremely important because here we've seen uh, a drop in coverage um, and therefore significant measles outbreak and I think this is something we need to be thinking of um, globally. So in total global lessons, just want to finish off, this is my um, last, second last slide. Just, um, I was fortunate enough last week um, to be in Israel, I was part of a public health delegation led by the Doherty um, Institute here in, in Melbourne, um, part of the University of Melbourne Um, infectious disease uh, group helped facilitate a a group of people to go over to Israel and just um, reflect a little bit on the lessons that have learned. Everyone will recall that um, they were extremely quick to roll out the vaccine in in Israel. They had early access um, to the Pfizer vaccine and shared their data uh, I think was one of the key things. So really that sort of can-do attitude which we also have here in Australia is a real key of the lessons learned from Israel that extremely rapid innovation, both in terms of delivery of the vaccine as well as um, getting ready for any cases that may come through with COVID-19 and a flexibility that allowed them to both obtain that data, publish it and therefore help guide um, lots of the rest of the world in terms of their vaccine and advice and administration. I certainly know from the Australian perspective, we've learned a lot um, from what happened in Israel. Not everything went perfectly and um, I think the same can be said of Australia. So there's things that we've done well, things that we can improve and those global lessons to help all of us move into what's now the new business as usual or COVID becoming part of our vaccine preventable disease landscape is, um, is going to be really important. So again, lots of um, opportunities to reflect and, and think about how we can um, improve and move things forward uh, um, in the coming months and, and years ahead. So just a few take home uh, messages just to to wrap things up. So um, I think one of the highlights now as mentioned is that we do have vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines across the life course. No plans at the moment to have vaccines administered to children zero to six months of age. They'll rely on maternal vaccine protection. So maternal vaccine, again, very safe and important way to protect pregnant women who can get severe COVID and protect their infants. Um, So we do have vaccines that are available um, just from this week more broadly from six months and over, which is, uh, which is fantastic and to think where vaccines have helped us get to in terms of managing the pandemic. A little bit of focus around errors. So again, those um, who are administering vaccines, either yourself or through your clinics, really have to be really extremely diligent about minimising the risk of errors and communicating that with different strategies is gonna be important. And we need to bring this into our new business as usual activities. Again, I have sort of pushed on this point a little bit. We do have to think not just of COVID, but of vaccine preventable disease more broadly and try and make sure that we've strengthened the systems. We've put so much effort into um, helping to manage COVID-19. Let's make sure we keep those good things we've developed moving forward and really strengthen the system for infectious disease um, management more broadly. There's other concerns now emerging regarding other vaccine preventable diseases which were predicted um, might occur and they're certainly coming to pass. We've got to think about how we can uh, manage those conditions that includes optimising flu vaccine uptake, thinking about polio, measles and really optimising protection with all our um, vaccines that we have available. And while there has been a global uh, pandemic, some of our experiences have been unique in terms of how we've managed our borders, for example, in Australia and New Zealand as a big island, but other things are are very much shared. So I think it's going to be really important just to reflect a little bit on how we can learn from what's happened internationally as well as here locally and support each other through the next phase of the pandemic. So again, thanks um, for the opportunity to present and um, I'll finish there. Thank you.
1: Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts. You can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points,